Well, good morning. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks Church. I want you to know that whether you are a first-time guest or you call the Oaks Church home, I'm so grateful that you are here to worship with us this morning. Let's pray as we begin our time together. Father God, you are so good to us. Lord, you speak through your word. God, I pray that um, as, as we enter into this time, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to, to hear from you as uh, you speak through your word. God, I pray that um, the songs that we have sung to you have been the prayers of our heart. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us to respond and taking the Lord's Supper. God, would you even draw someone right now who is far from you near as they see their need for a Savior. God, may this be a time of worship to you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you have your copy of the Bible, go ahead and find Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. We're continuing our study in the book of Mark today. And just by way of introduction, I wanted to tell you a story that happened to me a couple years ago. Uh, So there was a guy who was at the Oaks for a little while named Brad Lundblade, and uh, he is now the center for the Seattle Seahawks, but for a while he played for the Bengals. And so uh, whenever he was here, we got to, you know, go into like the VIP area after one of the pregames. And uh, and so there it was, we were there, and, you know, it was like me and Jimmy and Abby, and we were waiting for the team to come out. And, uh, you know, people are starting to file out and, you know, you see some of the, the people that you recognize. But for me at that time, I really wanted to see Andy Dalton, right? He was the quarterback at the time, right? I know we're all Joe fans now, but at the time, I mean, the face of the Bengals was Andy Dalton. So I was like, I, I got to see this guy. And so, you know, we're waiting there and we have Brooks. He's like two at the time. And then finally, I like see Andy kind of along the way. And like, I'm sure he was used to a lot of people trying to get autographs and stuff. So he was kind of far away from the pack. But I'm like, you know what? This is my one chance. Who knows if I will ever be standing here kind of near the locker room door again. And so I shriek, Mr. Dalton, as a guy who's like the same age as him, right? And I just like run, right? I'm like, here, take my two-year-old, like, you know, sling him on the ground. No, I like hand him to Abby and I'm just like running, Mr. Dalton, Mr. Dalton. And he was really kind, right? He turns around and we get to take a picture with him. I actually have a picture of me and Andy and the family, right? I picked up my son again. And, uh, and so it was just like, man, this, this great moment where I was just like, I am, I am like, you know, a guy that can maybe throw a football 30 yards on my best day. And like, here I am standing next to, you know, this NFL quarterback, just like feeling like this is, this is crazy. What an amazing moment to get to have like this memory. And I was reminded of this story whenever I was looking at this passage in Mark chapter seven this week, because we are going to see this woman who would have been the least likely person to ever be recognized by someone of the religious elite. I mean, she would have never been welcomed into the the temple of God, let alone into the presence of the very Son of God. And what we're going to see is that in this moment of desperation, she bursts into this room where Jesus is with his disciples. And in desperation, she makes this request of the Son of God. And he will not only heal her her daughter, but give wholeness to her soul and welcome her into the family of God. And the reason that this story is worthy of our attention is because through the gospel, this can be the reality of us all. Those who were once far off, those who perhaps even have the alcohol 
smell on your breath from what you did last night. Those who would say, you know what, my religious pedigree is, is tattered at best. No matter where you are right now or where you have been, the reality of this story is that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the main theme of our passage is exactly what Paul told the church in Rome in Romans 10, 13, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we will see evidence of that in this passage. Now, as we jump back into Mark chapter 7 today, uh, we could almost think that this passage is completely disconnected from what we saw last week. If you were here last week, you know that we saw this confrontation between Jesus and some of the Pharisees, and they're talking to him about how his disciples are unclean or they're defiled because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. And so they have this whole big thing, and then Jesus says, well, you know what? Actually, cleanliness is not a matter of external appearances. True cleanliness is a matter of the heart. Purity is a matter of the heart. Now, here's the connection in this passage. We're going to see Jesus travel 30 miles north to the place of Sidon and Tyre. And these were places that all religious people of that day would have considered unclean. We're going to see him encounter a Gentile Greek woman who would have been considered unclean by most Jews in that day. And what we are going to see is that Jesus in this encounter does not become unclean in himself, but makes her clean in his presence. And so this is almost a way to say, look... There are people there who know the scriptures that don't get this as well as some of the nations surrounding them. And so this will kind of be in two parts this morning. First, we're going to do like a deep dive Bible study. So imagine this is like your devotional time, right? And you're just really studying like the the place and the people and what's going on, like really digging into it. And then we're going to step back for a moment and say, okay, why does this matter? How does this help us view Christ rightly? How does this change the way that we think about God? And what impact does that have on our lives? So with all of that being said, let's read verses 24 through 30 together. And from there, he, being Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The first half of the sermon will be setting the scene. We're going to set the scene for what is actually taking place in these verses. And we'll begin by focusing on the place, Tyre and Sidon, in verse 24. It's significant that we're told that Jesus, he arose from where he was at, right, kind of in the Galilee region, and he travels 30 miles north to this region of Tyre and Sidon. After you get this written down, we actually have a map so that you can kind of visually picture this. Micah, can you throw that up there? So they were in this Galilee region, kind of where that purple outline is, and then they traveled north, and you can kind of see those two points right by the word Phoenicia of Tyre and Sidon. Now, let me tell you why a Jew of this day would have been so appalled to enter a region like this. 
Well, during the, the reign of King David in Israel's history, they had a pretty good relationship with these places. But over time, because of the pagan influence that took place in Tyre and Sidon, uh, they actually became one of Israel's bitterest enemies. That's what the Jewish historian Josephus says. He says that they were just kind of bitter enemies of Israel. And that takes place for a couple reasons. One, the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28 actually says that he is on equal authority and power with the one true God, Yahweh. Well, obviously Israel sees that as an attack against their God. They don't like that. And then as Tyre and Sidon began to grow, whenever Israel was dismantled by Babylon, the whole city rejoiced because now one of their opponents in trade, one of the competitors of commerce in their time, had now been taken out. There was also another reason to dislike the area, the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's because a really notable person in Israel's history came from Sidon, Queen Jezebel. You may remember that the king of Israel, King Ahab, married this pagan woman from Sidon named Jezebel, and she was bad news for the people of Israel. Not only did she come in and start persecuting the prophets, but she actually brought her Baal worship in and established altars all around the region in the place where God was once worshipped to now worship a pagan idol. She kind of set this standard that wickedness would be the cultural norm of that day, and they continued to feel the repercussions of that. And so whenever you were a Jewish person and you thought about the region of Tyre and Sidon, you wanted to get as far from those places as you possibly could. That was an unclean region that no one would dare travel, right? For me as a teenage boy growing up in Panama City, Florida, it was almost like my parents saying, look, while spring break is in town, you do not cross that bridge or you are in big trouble, right? That's how these disciples would have been raised, their parents would have been like, don't you ever go to that region. And now Jesus takes them there. How would they have felt? Would they have been looking over their shoulder? At the very least, they probably wondered why Jesus would bring them there. But he's doing this with great intentionality because here he's going to reveal his heart for the nations and the faith that is available to everyone who believes to the Jew first, but also to the Greek because the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who beliefs. Here we see the promise being fulfilled from the prophet Habakkuk that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now imagine this scene again. They enter this house. They're trying to be hidden, right? They've just kind of been put through the ringer of ministry. So they think we go 30 miles north. We'll get some time. Jesus can kind of invest in his disciples and teach directly to them without all of the crowds around them. And then as they're there in that house, the door swings open. This woman, this woman frantically falls on her feet before Jesus, begging him, pleading with him. And here we see the problem, that this woman's daughter was possessed. The problem at hand is that this woman's daughter was possessed. She's feeling the effects of living in a fallen world. Now, if you've been following the Bible reading plan for this year, you know that as you go through the book of Mark, everything happens really fast-paced. He uses the word immediately, a ton, and you almost wish that he would give you more details as he's going. But he's writing right, 30 years later in Rome as the Apostle Peter's intern, okay? So they worked closely together, and so all of this is coming from Peter's firsthand perspective through the pen of Mark. And so just imagine what Peter was thinking as this woman runs in, completely interrupts what they're doing, and begins to explain, my daughter is possessed by a demon. 
Now, if you are a parent, you know that there is nothing more helpless than feeling like your child is in danger or that your child is hurting or in harm's way. I mean, I think about that and just think, man, those have been some of the most difficult moments for me as a parent. And thankfully, I live in a day and age where most of those things can be solved by common remedies. It's like whenever our youngest son had this, you know, neck muscle issue, we took him to children's and he did physical therapy for a couple months and he was all right. When both of our boys had milk allergies, we, you know, changed their formula, bought something a little bit more expensive and they were good to go. Whenever, you know, they were pushing each other in the hallway and we heard a splat, we were able to get stitches in like 15 minutes, right? I mean, that kind of stuff happens and there's normally a common solution. But imagine how she felt. This issue couldn't be solved by medicine. She didn't know how to drive out a demon. She hadn't been trained in spiritual warfare. She didn't know what to do in this moment. And we don't know how she knew that they were there. We don't know how she knew who Jesus was, but we do know that she was in a desperate situation and that her problem was greater than herself. And so she runs to Jesus. And we've seen the way that Jesus reacts to people in the region of Galilee. He heals the lame. He he cures the leper, but how would he respond to this woman? The next verse kind of reveals a little bit more of the reason that this encounter would have been so scandalous. The person, she is a desperate Gentile woman. Look at verse 26. It says, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Well, why are we being told this? Well, it's because as a Gentile, she would have been considered unclean. Remember how last week we saw that the Pharisees said, hey, whenever you come back from the marketplace, you need to wash your hands. Well, that was because there were Gentiles in the marketplace and they were afraid that they would be unclean by interacting with them. I mean, if the disciples didn't recoil whenever she walked in, they would have at least been tempted to. And Mark tells us that she was a Syrophoenician by birth. He knows that for his Roman audience that he's writing to, It's more helpful for them to understand the region, kind of the political association that she had. But in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 15, he tells the exact same story. But he doesn't call her a Syrophoenician woman. He calls her a Canaanite woman. Now, why is that so significant? Because he wants us as a reader to feel this encounter like a first century Jew would have. Do you know where Canaan was? Canaan was the promised land of God. And you know who the Canaanites were? They were those people who stood as an obstacle to inheriting God's promise. They were the people who constantly tempted God's people into practices of idolatry. They were a constant thorn in the side of God's people. And she was a Canaanite woman coming into the presence of God. She was an embodiment of everything that the people of God wanted to separate themselves from. And yet she is here. How would Christ respond to her? We see that he listens, that he speaks, that he won't just say, all right, your daughter can be healed, but that he will answer in such a way that she will have wholeness and eternal healing. So we see the person, and next we see the plea, a request for healing and wholeness. Verse 26 leaves us with kind of this moment where she begs that Jesus would do something to heal her daughter And we get this response in verse 27 that is unexpected. It almost sounds harsh and offensive at first. We read it and we say, okay, how do we we reckon this? That kind and compassionate Jesus just compared this woman to a dog. 
What do we do with this situation here? It feels uncomfortable, right? And yet we're going to see that this is actually a very loving response of Jesus that not only challenges her faith, but exposes it for her disciples and also for us to see. Verse 27, he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, he's laced several metaphors into this mini parable, but let's try to understand what he's saying, this word picture that he's painting just for a second. If you went to someone's house and they had kids and you're over there for dinner and you see that they've got a couple kids that are sitting in their high chairs, they have empty plates, and they're just really hungry, right? They're starting to melt down. They've gone from hungry to hangry, and you're just like, what do I do with this situation? We need some food over here, stat. But they also have a dog that's under the table. It's kind of the family dog, and it looks hungry too, right? Puppy dog eyes, all that kind of thing, you know, begging for a treat. And you see, you know, the mom or dad walk over there, and you're like, and they just take this, you know, loaf of bread or whatever plate they have fixed, and you think, well, this would probably be for the child. And then they just sit it on the floor. And then the dog begins to eat, and then they walk over to the next room, and they haven't started preparing the meal for their kids yet. You would think, they are a bad parent. And you would be right. Because they need to put the priority on their child first and not focus on feeding the dog. Well, that is exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's telling her this parable that would have been very relatable to her. Now, here are the metaphors that he's given. The children are the people of Israel. The bread is the message of God's kingdom and the possibility of having a relationship with God. And the dogs that he's talking about are all of the nations that surrounded Israel, all of the Gentile nations. Now, why is he saying this like this? Well, because we've seen God's plan unfold ever since he first spoke to Abraham. He chose him. He said, I will make you a great nation. And through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. God chose a people, Israel, and he would make them a light to the nations so that all other people would hear the good news of the gospel, that you can have a relationship with God. Well, that same pattern is followed in the New Testament. Jesus comes to the, traditionally the people of God. He spreads the good news in the synagogue. He fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 61 in Luke 4 in the synagogue, ultimately so that those people would receive the good news and then it would echo to the ends of the earth. And so that is the picture that he is painting here. Now, while all of that is well and good, you may still be wondering, okay, why does Jesus call her a dog, right? We still have to deal with that, even if everything we've said up to this point is true. Well, a few things are worth noting here. The word that Jesus uses for dog is not the derogatory term that would have typically been used in the Greek language to talk about like the scavenging, you know, rough dogs that lived on the streets or out in the wilderness. The word that he uses in the Greek language, the language he most likely spoke to her as a Gentile woman, was the word that more likely resembled like a household dog, like a pet. And so this would have been more like calling her a puppy or relating the people from all nations to like dogs that lived in homes that would have been viewed well, other than like, you know, nasty dogs that were out on the street and were diseased and carried, you know, all kinds of things like that. Another thing to note here is that she would have been familiar with this. A lot of Gentile homes, although not Jewish homes, but Gentile homes, they had dogs as pets that lived within them. And so she would have said, well, yeah, of course you feed the dogs first. I'm totally okay with that. And yet what we see is in her response, her faith is revealed. She calls Jesus Lord and says this. She says, yes, Lord, verse 28, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
what is she saying here? She's saying, you know what? Because you have blessed Israel, I know that the people that are surrounding Israel don't have to wait to receive the blessing of God. She continues the parable, and she says, you know what? Whenever you go to that home, and although the dog isn't given a plate on the floor, you know where the dog sits? You know where our dog sits at our house? Not under my chair, not under Abby's chair, but under our two kids' chairs. Why? Because it's like Crumb City underneath there, okay? And they're just like munching on everything. Sometimes I think our dog eats more than our kids do because they drop so much stuff. And what she is saying is, yes, Lord, but even the dogs, they eat the crumbs that fall from, from the table. She's saying, because you have been so merciful and kind to those people, we know that your heart is merciful and kind to all people. And even now we can enjoy the overflow of blessing that you give because you have a heart for the nations. It's almost as if, if, if you go to someone's birthday party and you, know, you see that the parent serves you know, them first as, as it is their birthday and you don't get frustrated that you haven't gotten your piece of cake yet. No, you sit there and you look at their full plate and you know that it is a promise of what, of what is ultimately to come to you. Well, in the same way, she says, Lord, I know that because you have made yourself known, because you have made yourself accessible for a relationship with your people, then your heart is to make yourself accessible for a relationship with all people. As Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. She understands the breadth of God's kingdom better than the Pharisees did in the prior verses. And so Jesus responds favorably. We see in Matthew's gospel that he actually says, woman, great is your faith. Not only is her daughter healed. He says, go, your daughter will be healed. She opens the front door and sees that her daughter's restless soul that was tormented by a demon is now at rest. Not only is her daughter healed, but her faith is acknowledged and she is welcomed into a relationship with God. So now that we understand the context of this passage and what actually takes place here, we have to ask, why does this matter to us? Why does what happened to this Syrophoenician woman have any impact on our lives. And we see that in four attributes that are revealed about Christ. Next, we are going to see the one who saves. We're going to see the one who saves. There are four attributes of Jesus that are made known to us in this passage. And the first one is this, is that Jesus is accessible. Jesus was accessible to her. He didn't remain in the region of Galilee where she probably would have never stepped foot for the amount of judgment that she would have faced, where it would have been difficult for her to enter because of the way that other people would have viewed her. No, he moves himself and the disciples into this unclean region because ultimately he was accessible to her. How does he respond when she enters? I mean, think about it. He said, it says here that they went there so that they would be hidden. They were worn out from all the ministry that they had been doing. This was a time in which he was going to teach his disciples. And yet what we are going to see is that this woman's interruption becomes an object lesson for them in regards to his mercy and his grace. How do you typically respond to interruption? If you're anything like me, probably not well. And yet as this woman bursts in, Jesus, he listens he hears, ultimately he acts, and he fulfills her request to make her whole. 
you need to be reminded that Jesus is accessible. When you utter his name, he doesn't just kind of give a sigh that you need help again, that you're such a needy person, that life is too much for you to bear. Jesus is ever present and ever listening. Jesus is accessible to us as sinners and sufferers. This is why that passage that Connor read is such good news, that Jesus' invitation is, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you know that that invitation of Jesus is not just yours at the moment of conversion? If you are a Christian, that invitation of Jesus is ever standing. So that moment that you face the embarrassment of outbursting in anger, whenever you feel ashamed of the thoughts that you just had, or you feel inconsistent and hypocritical, unworthy of the presence of God, that is the exact moment that you need to call upon the name of Jesus, that you may receive his grace, and that it would be your motive for growth as the Holy Spirit works within you. Is that not whenever you need to be reminded of your new identity in Christ the most? Is that not the moment whenever you feel more guilty than ever that you need to be reminded that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Christ is accessible to you. What hope do we have if Christ is not accessible to us in our moment of greatest failure? We run to him in repentance, asking that he would make us whole through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. One of the greatest proofs of Christ's accessibility is prayer. If we are told to pray without ceasing, then we can be assured that Christ is always accessible in our prayers. What a reminder of God's accessibility whenever we gather together and sing his praise. The fact that we can open this book at any moment and hear the very voice of God within our souls. Christ is accessible through his people Whenever we're served by another, when we're the hands and feet of Christ to one another, Christ is accessible, and we see that in this passage. The second attribute we see of Jesus here is that Jesus is near to the suffering. He's near to the suffering. The plight of this woman would have been crippling. As I said before, she didn't know how to drive out a demon. She didn't know how long this would last. It's hard for us to comprehend the depth of her suffering, and yet many of you can I see the prayer cards that come in. As we lift you up and pray, sometimes we're on the verge of tears knowing what you're going through on a daily and weekly basis. You may not be able to relate to the exact situation of this woman, but chances are you know similar circumstances that would make you resonate with what she feels in this moment. Maybe some of you, you know that your parents are on the verge of divorce or splitting up and you have no idea what that is gonna to do to your family. Some of you are awaiting test results right now that could drastically change your life or the life of someone that you love. Some of you have children that you raised in church and now you're not sure what the trajectory of their life is. Some of you feel the pain of past sins even though you're currently following Christ. Some of you feel like you have an unbearable debt that you don't know how to climb out of some of you are, are thinking, you know what, I, everything's going pretty well right now, but honestly, I have an anxiety that I can't shake because I think at any moment it could just all come crumbling down. And you need to look at this story of this woman and be reminded that Jesus is near to the suffering. All of us live in a broken world. And think about your options for a moment. You can self-medicate with something to eat or something to drink or something to take. 
You can numb yourself, you can downplay this reality, or you can run to Christ. Your suffering and your circumstances will either drive you toward the Lord or away from the Lord. But God doesn't want you to waste your suffering. Suffering in this life reveals the all-sufficiency of our God. What if God would have just stopped at, at healing her and not, not even saying the words that he said? then she would have fallen short of experiencing a true restoration and healing like she does. I'm reminded of Psalm 34, 18 that says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Peace, comfort, and joy belong to those who know Christ in the midst of suffering. Don't miss this gospel implication that Jesus doesn't just empathize with the sufferer, but that he bore our suffering in our place so that ultimately we could have life with him forever. The suffering in this world is real, and yet because of Christ, it is temporary for those who know him. Regardless of the pain that you feel in this moment, it will one day be a distant memory. One of you needs to hear this this morning. That the same hands that were scarred on your behalf will one day wipe away your tears and all things will be made new. Christ is near to those who suffer. And you need to hear this. And you need to bear the burdens of the person next to you that needs to hear this. If we're going to be a church that is better together, then that means that we are honest enough with one another that we can suffer together, that Christ would be glorified in our lives. The third attribute of Jesus that we see here is that Jesus has a heart for the nations. This woman wasn't a part of the people of God. She was unworthy in every way, perhaps didn't even know the Ten Commandments, had never opened a scroll of Scripture. And yet what happens whenever she enters the presence of God is she is welcomed into the family of God. And here we see that Jesus has a heart for the nations, that the gospel is good news for all people, that the love of Christ transcends religious expectations, ethnic norms, and sociology that the gospel is good news for all people. Here an important truth emerges, that Jesus is the only one that saves, but that anyone who trusts in Jesus will be saved. That's important, that Jesus is the only one that saves, but anyone that trusts in Jesus will be saved. Now let me tell you why this is so important for where we live, for the people that you work with, maybe even some of your family members. Because 52% of the city of Cincinnati says that they regularly attend church on a Sunday morning. They would say that they belong to a church. But of that 52%, only 13% would say that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. That Jesus Christ is the only way to have a relationship with God. And that completely contradicts Scripture. So some people would say, well, yes, Jesus is a way to be saved, but you can also have a relationship with God or be good with God if, you know, you're a really sincere person that's a part of another religion, or, you know, if you're a really good moral person who always kind of means well, or if you were baptized when you were younger and kind of did the right things, but you're not really following Jesus now. And as we look at Scripture, we see the reality of this statement that Jesus is the only one that saves but we need to hold to the second half of this statement just as much, that anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. How often do we exclude our hot-tempered boss, the family member that we grew up with that just kind of gets on our nerves? How often do we see our selfish neighbor or coworker and think they are so far from Christ it's not even worth bringing it up? 
No, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, lest we forget that we were the nations that Christ sought out to draw us to himself and give us life. Let us not forget our past, that we would not present the gospel to someone that it might change their future. We see Jesus' heart for the nations here, that here he goes into a place that others would have called unclean so that he could call this woman to himself. The gospel transcends all barriers. The gospel is good news for all people, which is why we as a church are committed to equipping and sending missionaries to the end of the earth and equipping every member of this church to live as a missionary wherever God has placed you. Because if Jesus has a heart for the nations, then we will too. The fourth and final attribute we see of Christ is that he has authority over the spiritual realm. I love this, right? Jesus just speaks a word. He doesn't have to go to the house and pray over this little girl. He doesn't have to lay his hand on her head. He simply speaks a word, and the demons that shudder in his presence flee at his command. It reminds me of that promise that was made in Genesis 3, right whenever you think everything is broken and there's no hope for fixing it. And God promises the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve. He says, there will be one who will come one day, and although you might bruise his heel, he will crush your head. And here we see the, the foreshadowing of that fulfillment, that this encounter is just a small taste of what Christ is about to do on the cross in his death and ultimately in his resurrection, that he reigns over all realms, even the realm of darkness, that there is no spiritual battle that he is not victorious over. And praise God, because we know our sins better than the person sitting next to us. We know our own spiritual struggle. We're not, we're not those possessed with a demon. We're those who struggle with our own sinful flesh. And yet we see Christ wage war on our behalf and emerge victorious. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this, and you, maybe even put your voice, your name there, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do it? by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, in, triumphing over them in him. If you're a Christian, if you have called upon the name of Christ, then because this verse is true, you can rest assured that your sins were nailed to the cross of Christ and they speak over you no more. There's also great promise of preservation here, isn't there? That although Satan's fiery darts and temptation are promised in Ephesians 6, that Christ, your shield, will not be shaken. So how do we respond to all this? How do we bring this to bear on our lives? We respond exactly in the same way that this woman did. Now, whenever we read scripture, our, our command every time is not to just emulate the people that we see in the story, but because Jesus commends this woman's faith, we can respond and understand that modeling her example is worthy of our attention. We see here in verse 25 that she comes in, and look at the verbs at the end of this verse. She heard of him. She heard of Jesus. She heard that there was a Messiah. She heard that the Son of God had come, that the King had entered into his creation. And she came. She came to him. She was desperate for him. She ran to him, and she fell down at his feet 
in worship. Let me ask, where are you at this morning? Perhaps you entered this room, never really giving your relationship with God much thought, but today you've heard of Christ. You've heard of the one who saves. You've heard of the one who sets the captive free. And as someone who is currently separated from God, understand that Christ is your only hope for salvation. If you're one who's heard, then, then come and fall at his feet. Maybe you'd say, you know what? I, I understand that I'm one who, who's received this good news and yet I've settled for the crumbs of this world. I starve for the wrong things. I'm following Jesus and yet whenever you look at the way that I spend my time and my attention, what my affections long for, they're anything but Jesus. If that's the state that you are in, is there any wonder why you're not satisfied? Perhaps you're, you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know what, I've received this bread of life and there's someone that God is placing on my heart right now, a family member, a coworker, someone I'll see this afternoon or someone that I talked to yesterday who needs this good news of salvation. There's someone that needs to hear about Jesus, to come near to Jesus and ultimately to fall at his feet. You see, we have received more than the meager crumbs that fall from the master's table. As those who are spiritually hungry, Jesus makes this proclamation in John chapter six. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we, as those who are hungry, come to Christ, bringing our sins, our struggles, our weakness and our suffering and he meets us as the bread of life sufficient to satisfy every desire and ultimately to reconcile us with God in our unworthiness. Here we embrace the truth that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved.